Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. In our call to confession this morning, we turn to Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. The wisdom of this verse is to be found in setting our priorities right. Names matter more than stuff. Integrity supersedes money. And mercy and grace are better than wealth and treasure. In the parable of the wealthy man who stocked up all his stuff in bigger and better barns and then died that night, Jesus said, What good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? The reason this theme pops up again and again is that priorities matter. You make time for what is important to you. Even if you don't have a lot of stuff, or if you're not wealthy, with the caveat that in America that's a very relative benchmark and all of us are wealthy here, But even if you don't have a lot of stuff, you do have what God has given to you. Like the minas and the talents and the other parables. And you will answer for how you use those things. This can be a very practical measuring stick when assessing faithfulness. It is said you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their checkbook. And this is because how we spend our resources, our time, our money, our relationships, our families, our attention, How we spend our resources matters. It indicates what is important to us. And that matters because God is jealous. He must be number one in our lives. As we live our lives, we must be careful to put first things first. As Christians, we confess and we and we confess that Jesus is our Lord and Master. He is first. His good name should be more important to us than selling out for the riches of this world. His loving favor and approval is better than money in the bank. And gloriously, though, wisdom is a graceful woman, fruitful and abounding with blessings. Jesus promised us that we don't need to worry about the things of this world. If we keep our priorities straight, God is faithful and we will abound in him. This doesn't mean that every Christian is going to have it easy or make money hand over fist. But, if you stop and take a look around, we are all living in the midst of great covenantal blessing. Like I said before, we are all wealthy here. And for that, we must glorify God and give thanks and worship Him, seeking first the kingdom of God, and all these things are added to you. Because if we forget to choose God, and His name, and His favor, then we set ourselves up to be like the rich fool in the parable. So this reminds us of our need to be
Um, and uh, it's been uh, we've been in this book for a long time now, and and Luke is spending a lot of time talking about what's happened to Paul since he's got back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And we pick up with the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, and Paul, the day after Paul was attacked by the angry Jewish mob. Um, he was, the, the Jews from Asia had stirred up the crowd, the mob attacked Paul, the commander rescued him. Uh, last week we talked about how uh, the commander then commanded him to be scourged so that they could find out why he was uh, there was a, a questioning method that they had, and um, to find out why he was uh, causing this stir in Jerusalem. But God used the ordinary means of, of Roman citizenship, which Paul had, to deliver Paul from that from that um, that threat. Um, Nevertheless, Lysias still needs to know, he needs to find out why Paul is the center of this uproar in the temple. So in our text today, Paul is providentially spared yet again by human circumstances, and God delivers him out of the hands of his enemies by inciting division among the Jews who are attacking him. But we start with how Paul got back into the hands of the Sanhedrin. Um, Acts 22, verse... 30. This is the last verse of the chapter. The next day, uh, uh, because he wanted to know, this is the, the commander, because he wanted to know the cer for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So here we see Paul brought back out by Lysias. He, he's, he's been held in the fortress, Antonia, right there on the temple complex. And um, he, he brings him back out, and, and he brings him out to face the Sanhedrin. And a couple of points of order. The first one is that the Sanhedrin, we, we, we encountered the Sanhedrin before. Uh, Peter and John had been placed before the Sanhedrin. And if I can remind you, that was the highest court of, of, the, of the people of the Jews. That was, that was the, the, the highest level. Uh, it's kind of like the state Supreme Court, uh, as before you go to the, the Supreme Court of the nation. Um, and so this is the Sanhedrin. It was composed of 70 elders, uh, rulers. They were the chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people of Israel. Um, they were representative of the nation. Um, so Paul's brought back before before them, and it was it was composed of the chief priests and uh, and their council, their, and all their council, who, who the commander uh, had commanded to appear. Uh, the, the next point is that we see here that Lysias, uh, Claudius Lysias, has the authority to convene this council. He has the authority to convene the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And he was, because he had been charged by Rome to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so he, he, he exercises this authority to call these men together because Paul is a riddle for him. He, he doesn't get what's going on here. Uh, he just knows there's an uproar, Paul's at the center of it. He, he seizes Paul and then Paul asks for an opportunity to speak because he wasn't who he thought he was. He thought he was just a rabble rouser. 
Um, he, he thought he was some Egyptian ruffian. He wasn't that, and so he lets him speak, and then he, he, he speaks, and he ends on the fact that, God, that Jesus sent him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, um, I don't know if Claudius Lysias understood what that meant, but it meant that the gospel was for him. He was a Roman. And it, it also meant that these Jews really hated Paul, but he didn't understand why or where that was coming from. And so then he was going to scourge Paul. God rescued Paul from that. Claudius still has to present formal charges against Paul when he delivers him to the governor. So he needs to know what's going on. Um, and he calls together this, this council because the charges against Paul are specifically Jewish. They're peculiarly Jew Jewish in nature. And reasonably enough, he supposed that since he couldn't make heads or tails from the mob's accusations, remember that some called out one thing, some called out another. They didn't know why they had really accused him. Uh, reasonably enough, this commander supposed that he might receive a lucid response from the elders of the nation in a lawfully convened assembly. Uh, he said, so well, if I can't get answers from the mob and I can't beat it out of Paul, let's see if we can get a reasonable group of men together and uh, get an answer from them. And we're going to see how that turns out for him in a bit. But uh, the point that I want to bring out here is that this is a judicial setting. Luke's story is now in the courts of the land. And Paul starts out by giving testimony. And, and the testimony he gives is of a good conscience. 23 verse 1. Then Paul, as soon as he was brought out, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul starts out his address with sincerity, he's looking earnestly at the council. He says, um, he makes a declaration of his integrity. He says, my conscience is clear before God. And Paul is not, he is not a man with a dirty conscience. He's not a duplicitous man. He's not, he's not sneaky or shady. He's, he's honest before God. He's doing what he's doing honestly and purely. His motivations have been out of love and true faith. And that's why Paul came to Jerusalem in the first place. He was a Jew exercising his Jewish right of being there for the Pentecost feast, bringing gifts to the church and to the people, the poor in Jerusalem. And, and he, was, he, was, he was caught, you know, purified in the temple. He said, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, which is what the accusation originally had been brought against him was, is that he was teaching every, all men everywhere against the law, the people, and, and, and uh, don't remember what the other one is, but there are three things. <laughs> um, so, so Paul, is, he, he lives and he believes as before God. And, he's, and he has a, a clear conscience in this. And there is no, ultimately, no higher testimony than this. It's a truth claim. Paul says, I, I'm, I'm open. I'm open and honest. I've told you the truth. And he's bearing witness of himself. Now the problem for Paul here is that these judges, the chief priests, aren't assembled to, discern, to determine truth. They don't care about the truth. That's not what they're concerned about. 
Um, they know Paul and what he stands for. They know that he, uh, they, they, they've known him of old. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a man who'd been sent out by the Sanhedrin to go persecute the church. And they've heard his, his, his witness. And they've heard a testimony against him, according to their standard, about how he had propagated the way or the gospel of Jesus Christ for the last 28 years. They're not here to figure out why Paul did this. They're just angry at Paul because he has done this. They understand that Paul's declaration amounts to the same thing as Stephen's condemnation back in chapter 5. Stephen's condemnation against them was, you're stiff-necked, you're hard of heart. God has been working. It's all in the scriptures. It's all through the scriptures. And you have set up this system in place of the, the true God. This system, all it was, was pointing to God. And, it, and God was using signs and symbols. But now we have the real thing. And they understand that Paul's declaration of truth and his clear conscience uh, condemns them. Paul is a Christian, and if his testimony is true, then the priests are culpable for rejecting Christ. And so they, they react. Uh, verse 2, we see Paul suffer injustice at their hands. 23, verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now first we must recognize this is way out of order. This, this, is, uh, this is bad form. In Jewish law before the Sanhedrin, it was similar to our courts in that a prisoner is innocent until proven guilty. Um, moreover, Paul was not just a prisoner before the Sanhedrin. He was a prisoner who was under the protection of Rome. We just saw that he had Roman citizenship. On top of that, this court wasn't even convened by the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was convened by the Roman commander. So uh, for them to attack Paul like this would have made Paul a high-risk target for them to just, you know, without reason, slap him in the face. But this episode does bear witness to what kind of opposition Paul is up against. Josephus tells us, uh, the historian Josephus writes about the, this period in, in Israel, Hebrew history, in Jewish history. And, and he tells us about this particular Ananias, and he is a, an unsavory character. He was greedy. He was arrogant. And he was known for his severity and cruelty. Now, I want to call attention once more to something that I've talked about several times through Acts, and that's this, that every time that Christians and apostles are put on trial for their faith, it's the court who is really being tested in, in the book of Acts. This is, the, the story of Acts is the story of Jesus Christ and the gospel going out and taking dominion over the world. And one of the ways the gospel takes dominion over the world is that it highlights the darkness in the world. Jesus, in, in the beginning of John, in the book of John, Jesus comes, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and etc., etc., etc. He gets down, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hated him. And, we, and then we had the story of, of the gospel. And the story of the gospel is that men, the darkness hated the light so much that they crucified Jesus. And yet God turned the light back on. Three days later, we, we celebrate Easter every year because Jesus came back from the dead. 
God turns that light on and he shines it brightly. And then, and then, then, he, then he, he, he turned up the wattage at Pentecost and he sent his spirit into his people. And then from, from Pentecost, the gospel just goes out and spreads like wildfire. Jesus has been baptized with the baptism that he was waiting to be baptized with. And so now he's come to set a sword and division and fire to, to take over the world. And that's the story of the book of Acts. And one of the ways that happens is when Christians are put on trial for bearing witness to the truth, the foolishness and the, the wickedness of the, 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 the courts they're put before just is, is highlighted. It's evidenced. It, it, the, the, the mockery that they've made of justice becomes evident to, every, to all eyes to see. And God's truth reigns supreme. So every time Christians and apostles are put on trial for their faith, it's the court who is really being tested. Because human courts cannot righteously condemn divine works. Human courts cannot righteously condemn divine works. And this is the wisdom that we saw with Gamaliel at the beginning of the book of Acts, when he said... We can't, if, if this is something, we can't stop it. If this is of God, we can't stop it. But if this is of men, it will fail of its own accord. That was the wisdom of Gamaliel, because he understood this principle. Human courts cannot righteously condemn God's work. Because every time that, this is the, the metaphor Jesus uses, is new wine and, and wineskins. Every time the wineskin of human courts uh, tries to hold the new wine of Christ, it, it busts the seams. Um, and so, uh, so Paul suffers injustice at this court, and everybody in the world knows about it. Luke writes about it. We read about it. It was, it was right in the center of Jerusalem before the highest court. And so Paul responds immediately to this great injustice, verses 3 to 5. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is a, a conundrum a little bit here. Um, Paul says, God's going to strike you. Um, and, then, and then right away he says, well, I didn't know he was the high priest. And in the commentaries, these verses are debated as to the tone of the situation. And some people think, well, Paul just, he lost his cool there. He was in the wrong. He, he did not follow Jesus, Jesus' witness. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he was silent. That's what Paul should have done, just taken it. So they, 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 some people find fault with Paul. Some think that Paul was being ironic, um, that when he says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, he was, he was, saying, that it, it, he was saying that in the sense of, well, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that somebody who is capable of such injustice is worthy of the title of high priest, um, which is... Not necessarily really clear from the text, but that's one way to, to make sense of it. Uh, and some think that this uh, was because uh, Paul couldn't see him well enough, because we know that Paul had some eye issues that, you know, he, 
So he really just couldn't see who was speaking, and so he didn't know he was the high priest. Um, but I think that there's a, a more natural reading that makes better sense of this, especially when you consider that um, Paul had not been in Jerusalem for 28 years, hardly. I mean, he stopped in two or three times, just briefly. Um, this high priest was not the high priest when Paul had, had been a, a Pharisee and in a member of the Sanhedrin at, before he, he became a Christian. And... Um, so, and moreover, it's likely that the Sanhedrin would not have been dressed in their formal wear. Uh, this was a court that was called, convened uh, abruptly by the commander, so they would have likely been dressed in their street clothes, so the high priest would not necessarily have been dressed up in all of his priestly garb. And uh, finally, Paul spoke out of turn, almost, as far as... He starts speaking as soon as everybody shows up, and he, he wasn't addressed by the court. And that's, that's highly irregular. Normally, when you have a court, it's the, the judge or the, the, the lawyers that address the witness, and then the witness is permitted to speak. So Paul spoke before he would have seen the hierarchy structure of the people that were standing before him. So basically, he's just saying, I didn't know that was Ananias, or I didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. And if he had, he may have responded a little more respectfully or a little differently. But, that, all that said, Paul's condemnation remains just. He didn't lie. He, he, he spoke the truth. This man was a whitewashed wall. Uh, he, God would strike him. And he is commanding Paul to be struck contrary to the law. So he, the hypocrisy here is flagrantly evident. In that this commander has called together the court of Israel to uphold the law of Israel and bring its case against Paul in how he has violated that law. And the first thing that happens after all that Paul has said is that I have a clean conscience. The first thing that happens is that the high priest of that court commands him to be struck and violates the law that he's supposed to be upholding. Flagrant hypocrisy and violation of truth and, and, and justice. So, uh, moreover, um, while it's all true, Paul's declaration proves to be prophetic. Also, we know from Josephus, again, that God did strike Ananias um, several years later, but he died an untimely death at the hand of uh, some Jewish assassins during the Jewish rebellion. So Paul um, has this interaction here, and, and just the hypocrisy of this court has been displayed to the world. And what happens next? What happens next is that Paul gets shrewd. He gets clever. He, he, he's, he is a very intelligent and wise individual, and he gets, he gets really tricky here. So verse 6. But when Paul perceived... That one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he perceives something very, very interesting here. When Paul recognized that he wasn't going to get anywhere with the simple declaration of truth, that's not what this court was about. 
when he realized that the gospel wasn't going to deliver him from this court because this court had foregone conclusions. It was it was a tainted it was a tainted panel. Um, his his audience was not open to it in in its in its natural delivery. So he starts his address over and he takes a different and shall we say more nuanced tack. He he says, okay okay, let me start over. And let's go, let's go at it from this angle then. And there's a similarity here between his witness before the mob the day before, in that his testimony starts with disarmament. Remember when he witnessed to the mob, he says, I'm a Jew. I, you know, I'm a Jew. I, I'm, I'm a, I believe in the law. And, and he starts telling them all these, how he persecuted the church. And, and so the, the mob would have gotten to the point of thinking, well, why, why, what's the big deal? Why are we attacking this guy? Um, so um, um, here he begins with disarmament of the Pharisees among the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he represents Christ faithfully. This, he's honest with, with what he's saying. The words he's saying are true. That he, Christ is the hope and the resurrection uh, of the resurrection of the dead. Um, and, and then we uh, come up with the question, well, can he say he's a Pharisee? Is that, is that allowed? Uh, and yes, absolutely. He is a Pharisee. He, when he became a Christian, he didn't stop being a Pharisee. Now, in our parlance, in, in, in you know, modern American church history, if you say you're a Pharisee, that's, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, that, it has connotations. But, but, but in, this, in this day and age, the Pharisees were the ones who were the keepers of the law. They were the ones who understood the Old Testament the best. They were the, the, they were the theologians of the day. And Paul's saying, I, 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 don't, I haven't you know, foregone all of the work that I did up before I became a Christian. Paul's saying that becoming a Christian is not taking away and, and negating everything that you were before. It's adding something to you. It's, 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 it's not taking something away. It's adding something to you. In Paul's own letters, he counsels those who come to the faith to do so in the context of who they are. Christianity is not running away from yourself. It's not a safe harbor from who you are or who God made you to be. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is finding yourself in Christ. It's sanctifying who you are, where you are. It's taking out the sin part of you. It's taking out the, 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 the grossness and, 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 and causing you to confess your sin and repent of it and turn from it and now start being a Christian Pharisee. Now start being a Christian Jew or a Christian Gentile. Paul didn't say, okay, well, once you become a Christian, now you are no longer a Jew. In fact, that's what the church had been accusing him of. And that's what Paul had been in the process of you know, separating himself from when he, when he was attacked by this mob. Because he was you know, paying for the, the vows of the, of the Jews. So when Paul, when Paul says, I am a Pharisee, he's not lying. But he did start something. He, he opened a real can of worms in this particular crowd. Verses 7 through 10. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. 
Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So, first of all, poor Lysias. <laughs> this guy, he can't get a break. <laughs> he just can't get anywhere with Paul. I mean, every time he puts him before the crowd, it's just like split. <laughs> it's just, he's not getting the answers that he wants or he needs. Um, there remains a question of Paul's integrity here. Um, and he even acknowledges the potential a little later uh, in, the, in the coming chapters. He's going to be brought before the governor, Felix, and we're going to get in that, into that in a few weeks. But there he refers back to this incident, and Paul says, Let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So Paul recognizes that he's being a little bit facetious here. He knew, he knew what he was doing. Um, and he's saying that they might take issue with my saying that. Okay, that, I grant that. Because that's, that's he, he's talking about it in a very specific sense, or a specific sense, and they, they would have been thinking of it in a very broad, general term. And, he, and so he's, he's representing it as the way that all Pharisees think about concerning the resurrection of the dead, because we know that many Pharisees did reject Jesus, and so he would have been pointing specifically in his, in his mind to Christ. But he's not, he's not admitting or acknowledging guilt, especially according to the charges that are being brought against him. He, his integrity remains intact. What, what Paul did, really, was bring the charges against himself. That's what Paul did. He's, so he started out saying, well, uh, I have a clear conscience before God. He gets smacked for saying that. He says, okay, here's a different, different attack. I'm going to bring the charges against myself. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and it's concerning the resurrection and the hope of the dead that, that I am being judged. So, Paul, so, so Lysias brings Paul before the Sanhedrin to find out what the charges are. And Paul says, here are the charges. But he couched them in such a way as to divide his accusers down a deep and long-standing divide. There was certain, and this was certainly highly irregular. It's not normal for the accused to bring the charges against themselves. But this is true. Paul's, Paul's declaring the truth. And the charges are accurate. It, this is why he is in front of this court. is because he believes in Jesus Christ. He has the hope and, and he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And, and because he's been living in accordance with that truth and declaring it everywhere he goes and proclaiming Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the law, that he is now being accused by the, these people. That's why he's being accused. It just doesn't sound good. It doesn't make the court look very good to be accusing somebody for holding the, the, the promises of the law in high regard. And so the, the Pharisees recognize this, and they, they jump in and defend Paul. And, and uh, this is highly irregular. 
But we can conclude that Paul did not make a mistake here. He did not make a mistake here. When he says this, it's not a mistake. And we conclude that he did not make a mistake back in his outburst against the, the high priest. That was not a mistake. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because Paul is speaking exactly like Jesus Christ had commanded his disciples to speak back in Matthew chapter 10. And there he says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. That's, that's, who, that's who Paul is, and that's where Paul is. He's been delivered up, and he's speaking by the Spirit. That said, uh, we can understand how this might make him feel... He starts getting torn apart again. <laughs> the, the, the commander has to come and save him a third time. Uh, this, this has got to be frustrating for Paul. I mean, he's speaking truth, but, but they're not hearing it. They're his people. They, they, he knows the way they think. He's telling them the truth. That's not what concerns them. They're not interested in that. But we're going to see that Jesus vindicated him back in Matthew chapter 10, but he's going to vindicate him right here in, chapter, in the next verse, verse 11. He vindicates Paul for having done well and testifying Christ before Jerusalem. So verse 11 of chapter 23. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So Paul's situation was, was certainly a rough one. We, we know this because Jesus comes down to give him peace. Jesus saw it necessary to come down and speak to Paul. And, and, and he appears to him expressly in order to lift his spirits. We understand his melancholy. He's, he's in his second night in prison. And two times his testimony has been rejected by his beloved people. And instead of accepting life and free grace in the hand of God, which he's bearing witness to, they've tried to kill Paul three times now. They've tried to kill Jesus Christ's chosen ambassador. Three times. And moreover, there was no justice. Even in the highest court of the land of the chosen people of God, there was no justice. These people were the recipients and the guardians of God's law. And in fact, there was more justice from Rome than there was from Jerusalem. But Jesus is not faced. And Jesus comforts Paul. Because Jesus is in charge. Jesus appears to Paul in the night. What a glorious reprieve for Paul. He, he must have been second-guessing himself by now. I mean, this is, this is, these are things he's been wanting to do for years. Decades, really. And just such... I mean, he's had, he's had terrific success on the mission field. He's a preacher of the gospel. He's planted churches all across the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Where he goes and he preaches, people believe. And he preaches in, in Jerusalem, and bam, he's attacked. Or he's attacked, and then he preaches, and then, he, and then he's attacked again. 
Then he bears witness before the court. He's attacked again. But Jesus comes and reprieves him. Paul must have felt his soul swell within him to stand before his Lord and just to, to hear those words. Well done. Well done. You are doing what you're supposed to be doing. So Jesus, Jesus gives him reprieve. He gives him words of comfort. He tells him he's been successful. Be of good cheer, Paul. You, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, your words were my words. Jesus is basically saying, I don't measure success the way you do, and, and you are successful. Don't second-guess yourself. Just trust me. Trust me. And then Jesus puts him back on task. He says, you're done here. You're done. You did good job. Now, go to Rome. Keep up the good work. You, you, just keep doing it. You, keep going. So Paul is to move his ministry from the center of the church to the center of the world. Again, this is the direction that the gospel takes in Acts. It always starts in Jerusalem and goes out. Goes out further and farther. So it's now the next place he said, and prophetically he's talked about this already in, in the past chapters. He's going to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He's already written the book to the Romans. Now he's now he's got his free ticket to Rome. Well, we're going to get to that in a bit. But that's what happens here. In, in, in captivity, Paul gets a free ticket to, to do what he's supposed to do. God blesses him. So there's a lot of story we've covered this morning. But the take home from this is really simple. And here I'm going to borrow a line from my former pastor, uh, Doug Wilson. God draws straight with crooked lines. Ordinary means are crooked. We live in a messy world. The world has fallen. The sin has decayed and eaten away and messed us and everything around us all up. It's all messed up. These are crooked lines. I mean, you look around you like, how do you make sense of this? What, what is going on here? This is what we see when we see wickedness and corruption in high places. What's going on here? How does this work? That's wrong. It's evil. But we have God's light, and he is shining in our world. And what he shines in our world is that he is working here. Nevertheless, or despite the evil and corruption and wickedness and the dirtiness and the vileness and the crookedness and the brokenness and the death and the suffering and the pain, God is working here. He delivered Paul and he delivers us. We can know that Jesus is in charge. And if we submit ourselves to him, he has a comforting word for us. He has encouragement and a purpose. A purpose. We're not here without a purpose. We're here for a reason. God gives us a life worth living. And the assurance that he is here with us to the bitter end in this glorious battle in the midst of all these crooked lines. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.
depression and misery and hunger and hatred and loneliness and ugliness. All these things exist here. All of these things confuse us and disorient us and frustrate us and hurt us and ultimately they kill us. And yet, in the midst of all this, God humbled himself. He stepped down into our shoes. He bore our guilt and our shame and our punishment once for all on the cross. And because he did that, and he shines the light of salvation in our dark world, we can now see clearly that Jesus is Lord, and God is love, and he died for us. We come to this table to remember and to receive the grace of God. We come here to participate in Jesus' body and blood and to be united to Christ and to be fed by Him. As surely as we eat and drink this bread and wine, we are covenantally bound to our God. And He purifies us in the blood of Christ and calls us sons and daughters and draws us into His bosom for all eternity. And in this light, we can now go out and fight the darkness. In this light, God gives us victory over the courts of men and the empty vanities of our world. We can know God's presence and His favor in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.